Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead After Being Knocked Down, is just around the corner from launching into the world. You can pre-order a copy right now wherever you are in the world. Just head to the link in the show notes below in order to get your own copy. It's available in Kindle, hardcover, and it will soon be available in audiobook, which I will be narrating. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but hope you guys can get a copy. Hope you support the show, myself and yourself as well, because that's what the, the book is really, really speaking to. Thank you all very much. All right, time to enjoy the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Today, my friends, we are going to talk about what mental health really is and what it isn't. And we need to rethink the conversation around mental health. And today we're going to do that with psychologist Dr. Lucy Folks. She is going to explain how we do that and why this conversation is so important. How do mental health problems arise? How do we distinguish between the normal challenges of modern life and actual illness? Is society really experiencing a new mental health crisis? And so, so many other things. Dr. Lucy Folks is an academic psychologist conducting research about mental health and social development, particularly in adolescence. She has a new book that she's working on currently about adolescence. She is a senior research fellow at the Anne Freud National Center for Children and Families and an honorary lecturer in psychology at UCL. She has an extensive experience in public science communication nationally and internationally. She regularly gives talks about adolescent mental health, mental health awareness, and workplace mental health to corporate and public sector clients, including schools. Her first book, which I think is really, really important, especially in today, uh, What Mental Health Really Is and What It Isn't, ex examines how we should talk about mental health and illness, and it is now available wherever books are sold. It was 
published as Losing Our Minds in hardback in 2021. Uh, And like I said, she's currently working on her next book about adolescence, which I think is very, very interesting uh, subject matter, if I do say so myself. Uh, But this was a wide-ranging conversation in regards to the topic of mental health. And you guys know me, I've struggled with mental health illness for most of my life pretty much. So there's a, a great deal of benefit to have, to be had, sorry, during this conversation. So I hope that you guys get something from it. Also, don't forget that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, is just around the corner from launching into the world. I hope that you guys can pre-order a copy of the book. It will just go a long way in not only supporting yourself, but also supporting me and this show. If everyone got a copy, that would be absolutely fantastic. Links will be in the show notes below to make it easy for you. If you want to get uh, Dr. Lucy's book, links will be in the show notes below too for you guys as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into this story box and learn more about what mental health really is and isn't as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Dr. Lucy Fox. Yes. Hi, Jay. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Now, like I said just a second ago, we need to reshape the conversation around mental health and we're going to do that in just a minute. But before we do that, my very first question for you is, what does success look like for you? Oh, gosh, that's a big thing. Um, I guess doing interesting work, work that I find interesting, um, but that also makes some sort of impact um so that yeah i find it very rewarding when i know that people have read the book or read some work that i've done and found it helpful or that it's changed the way that they think in some way so i think yeah for me doing that at scale is obviously nice and one form of success but even if i do it with one person i find that um yeah it sort of makes all the all the work that goes into the book worthwhile did you ever think that you would write a book on mental health? I thought that I'd write a book since I was like, um, yeah, about five. I just always, and I think a lot of writers probably say this, that they just kind of were always a writer and they always had it in them. So I always wanted to write a book. Um, and I wrote a novel first. That was initially what I was interested in, but that I wrote the whole thing, but it just didn't go anywhere. And then I was working by then as an academic psychologist, getting very interested in mental health. And I thought, actually, maybe what I should be doing is writing a nonfiction book. So I did that and I was like, I'll come back to the novel bit, but I don't know if I will now. But yeah, it was always in me, I think. Was it hard for you to write a book on mental health? Um, It's hard. Yes, it was hard. Um, You've got to get it right. You've got to be very careful about the research that you're writing about and that you don't miss something out and that you don't piss someone off whose work you've described, you don't miss something obvious. So a lot of the challenge was about reading. Um, Getting the tone right, as we'll talk about, like some of the stuff I say is quite sensitive and potentially critical. So I was anxious about it coming out that it would be misperceived or criticised. So a lot of effort went into that side of it. Um, and it's just a big old piece of work to wrangle with um, in your head. You know, it's not like an essay where you've got a few thousand words. You're trying to think about the structure across 
80,000 words and that's difficult. I want to get into sort of the process a little bit later, but you've got this incredible book. So later on, it was published in hardback, I believe, as Losing Our Minds. And then it was originally published as What Mental Health Really Is and What It Really Isn't. Other way around. The other way around. So What Mental yeah. Health Really Is and What It Isn't. So, yeah. What Mental so Health you- Really Isn't. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got it. Butchered. I'll let you. I'll let you say what it is. <laughs> so it used to be called "Losing Our Minds: What Mental Illness Really Is and What It Isn't," and I really liked the title of "Losing Our Minds." Thought it was quite clever, but um, they wanted to repackage it a bit for the paperback, and so their suggestion was to lose "Losing Our Minds" and make the subtitle the title. So now it's just called "What Mental Illness Really Is and What It Isn't." So when we are talking about the whole topic of mental health, everyone's got mental health. Is that correct? Yeah, in the same way that everyone has physical health. Um, so it's a bit of a, people say that it's a bit of a sort of nothingy phrase. I mean, it's like everybody has, I don't know, a body. It's just the question becomes more interesting about to what extent do people have problems with their mental health and how common is that? But yeah, everyone has a sort of concept of mental health, I guess. Did you discover how many mental health issues there actually are? Uh, it's sort of an unanswerable question because it depends how you define mental health issues. And I think this is a big part of the problem at the moment. So really commonly thrown around stat, uh, often in these uh, kind of awareness campaigns, is that one in four people will have um, will meet criteria for a mental disorder in any given year. Even that is a bit tricky because some people in a study might meet criteria for a disorder, but actually they're not if you were a clinician and you assess them, they're not sufficiently distressed to really warrant that disorder. So that might be an overestimate. But then actually, if you think about just general things like distress and anxiety, it's going to be way higher than one in four. Um, You know, it's probably going to be everyone a bit across a whole year. Um, So it's a really, it's a difficult question and it depends on how you're defining mental health issue, which is sort of undefinable. (laughs) So how do we know that we've got a mental health condition per se? Like, is it more about the diagnosis that we get from our doctor? Can we self-diagnose or does it have to be? I think self-diagnosis is risky uh, in the same way that it would be risky to try and self-diagnose with a physical condition, um, you know, like diabetes or cancer. Although you could certainly have a hunch that you might have a problem. Um, but yeah, lots of self-diagnosis is definitely happening, happening much, much more now because of all this awareness that we've been, um, all these campaigns that have been telling us to notice these problems. So self-diagnosis is really common and really understandable. Um, but I would yeah encourage caution, you know, if you are concerned that you have um, a mental health condition or disorder, that it's useful to go and talk to a professional. What are the main sort of mental health conditions that you discovered that sort of plague most people in the world? Is it more depression, anxiety, those sort of things? Yeah, so anxiety and depression are the two common ones. Um, And But both of them, like all mental health conditions, exist on a spectrum. So everyone in the world will be somewhere on this scale between, say, take anxiety, for example, some people will experience it as a kind of mild um, transient emotion. And gradually, as you move up that 
spectrum, you might start to experience it more often, um, experience it at a greater severity, uh, find it more difficult to control, find it more distressing, and also importantly in terms of understanding whether you've moved into the threshold of what we might call a disorder, it uh, starts to, to affect your ability to live, to function in your daily life. But the trouble is that lots of people experience lots of temporary anxiety and mild anxiety, which is really unpleasant and difficult and needs to be paid attention to. But it's not necessarily useful to conceptualise that as a disorder. And the same with depression. Everyone has sort of temporary periods of low mood. But once you get up into the high end, the disorder end, uh, it, it's much more than mood. It's actually quite a physical disorder. And it's about hopelessness and inability to experience pleasure. But again, all of these things exist on a spectrum that we'll all sit somewhere on and move around. There's not a binary between having a disorder and not having a disorder. When we are looking at that that spectrum from someone that is really, really bad with depression and with severe anxiety compared to someone that isn't, why is that the case? Why does it fluctuate from person to person? As in what causes it in the first place? So what causes it in the first place? And then why does it sort of like, why does, is it individualized? So one person suffers with it more than say mm. another person does like yeah. the, the symptoms of it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different answers to that question and depending on who you speak to, they'll put different emphasis on different things. But the way I understand it from the evidence we've got is that you will have some sort of biological genetic vulnerability to feeling these experiences yeah. but it, that will also interact with what's happening in the real world uh, so in terms of the level of difficult things that happen to you the stress that happens to you the traumatic events that happen to you the amount of social support that you have you know whether you're being bullied etc um, and then also how you psychologically how you navigate and deal with those events so there's a sort of there's biology there's psychology there's the environment and everyone is yeah has different uh, setups for all three of those things yeah and how do we so if we were to say treat someone that is on the the higher spectrum the mm. worse off one do mm. we go into more the medication first or do we try and help them with some other strategies and then move into the medication first? Does that sort of work? Better? Yeah, it's interesting. It depends on the person and on the healthcare system. So the in the UK, at least, the advice um, for, for example, for mild to moderate anxiety and depression, so not right up at the extreme end of the spectrum, is that you would try um, self-help first and psychological therapy first and then if that doesn't work you would step up and try medication so that's the kind of ideal model but unfortunately what often ends up happening is when the um resources are limited so there's long waiting lists for therapy for example what you see happening is that in some cases the, the pills get handed out as a first port of call um and there's been some criticism of that. Although equally, you could also argue, you know, you as a medical professional, you want a need to offer some help. So if the therapy's not there, then you can see why they offer alternatives. 
So there's the kind of idealized version of treatment and there's the reality within the, the, the system you're working with. But I don't, I don't know what the equivalent is like in Australia. I think you have private healthcare, right? We do, yes. Is that the yeah. same with uh, Britain as well? No, it says, no? well, so some people, like if you um, work for a big corporation and certain companies will offer uh, private healthcare, or you could pay for it yourself, but it's um, expensive and unusual to do that. Generally, if people have private healthcare, they'll do it through their company. So most people are reliant on the NHS, which is which is free, which is, um, well, free at the point of um, seeking help. You um, You pay for it through your taxes, but it's the demand is too strong and there's not enough money. So lots of people are being failed by the NHS at the moment. Would you consider, say, someone having an addiction to something part of mental health? Yeah, so that's a big question. I don't, I don't know that much about addiction, to be honest, because it's a slightly separate area to what I've worked on. But there's a there's a big debate about the usefulness of framing it as framing addiction as a disorder. There are some benefits in that it um, removes blame from that individual. Um, in terms of how they understand themselves, but also how their family and employee, for example, behave towards them. But it can be problematic as well because it might make people think, and the you know the evidence shows that that if you assume something as a disorder, then you think um, people are less likely to get better, for example. So, um, and some people don't like framing it as a disorder because a lot of the reasons that lead people to become addicted is because their lives are incredibly difficult. So it feels a bit unfair to just call it as, you know, something wrong with their brain when it's actually probably something going on in the outside world. But that's about the extent of my knowledge on addiction. How about loneliness? Is that part of it? Um, There's been quite a lot of attention on loneliness recently. It was, I think it was like the theme of some recent campaign over here. I mean, it's an odd disorder, um, but it can, it's associated with, things like anxiety and depression. So if you're lonely, you're more likely to feel depressed. And if you're depressed, you're more likely to feel lonely. Um, Loneliness is really interesting because it's a subjective state. So it's not about literally how many people do you have in your social circle. Mm -hmm. It's how alone do you feel? How supported do you feel? So you might have quite a lot of social contacts, but still feel lonely. Um, And obviously it was a really interesting uh, construct in the, pandemic yeah talking about loneliness yeah because if we were to speak about the lack of connection that a lot of people had during the pandemic i mean there's there's a form of connection through zoom but it's not the same as like being in person Mm. with people like there's a different there's a kinetic energy right like it's it's really really infectious Mm. and you can you can feel it when two people are together in a room having a deep and meaningful conversation. I mean, I mean, we're having a, a connection at the moment through Zoom, but it's just not the same as if we were actually in person. So, mm. I mean, the rate of people complaining of not being able to see their fr- friends or family members during the pandemic just went crazy. Mm. And how do we how do we mend that? Because we've got this massive hole that we've dug is there a way to sort of dig ourselves out 
of that hole? Well, I guess even that's an open question. Like, are we still in the hole or were we in it temporarily and now out of it again? I think it's like evidence-wise, we still don't really know about the long-term psychological effects of the pandemic. And there's quite a few interesting studies showing that the mental health sort of fluctuated along with the state of lockdown that we were in. So like when you first went into lockdown, anxiety increased, but then it actually sort of leveled off and calmed down. Although the mood was worse in lockdown, but then it improved again. So yeah, optimistically, I might think maybe it's, um, you know, we're not still stuck in the hole because yeah, we've, we've been able to climb out of it now, but I I think the long-term consequences might be more in terms of um, economic impact and lost education and that kind of thing. It kind of felt like we're on this pendulum swing in a way. Mm. So one moment where it's sort of leveling out, the next minute it's going up, and then back we go. <laughs> yeah, it, was, um, it felt like that. So, we, yeah, we had a second lockdown in January last year, and I think in the few months preceding that, everyone thought it was no one imagined we'd go back again into lockdown, and that was a real mm. um yeah, a difficult moment, that announcement. <laughs> we had ours in, uh, in June, I think, of last year. And that got, honestly, the worst lockdown of mm. the two. It mm. was, I don't know if you heard too much about what happened in Sydney and Melbourne. And Melbourne, because I had some colleagues there at the time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, vaguely. I, and, yeah, my friends... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I, I can't remember the sequence of events, but I, yeah, Sydney were in lockdown for a long time as well, right? We were in lockdown, I think, uh, the second one for over four months. Yeah. It was yeah, just a long, amazing. long time <laughs> yeah. to be in, in crazy isolation. Um, and it was it was tough. I'm not not gonna mm-hmm. not gonna lie, but I guess I, I guess this leads to my question of mental resilience. Like, how do we build our mental health in in the form of being more resilient to when 
say, for example, these challenges do come in our life that we can resist getting or falling into depression and and anxiety, Mm -hmm. is that even possible? Um, Sometimes, depends on who you are um, and how how vulnerable you were to start off with and all sorts of things. Um, I think some of them, some of the suggestions about how to be more resilient are just fundamentally more difficult for some people to implement just because of the way their, their brains and their minds work. Um, like one basic thing was, so it's a lot about coping. So how do you cope when something difficult happens and there are sort of healthy coping strategies and less healthy or helpful ones. And so one healthy one, for example, would be like reaching out for social support or a thing called um, cognitive reframing, which is basically how do you try and talk to yourself about the problem in a more positive, hopeful kind of way. So that does, that is a part of resilience, but some people will just find it much more difficult to do that reframing because it's just harder when you're already depressed, for example, or they don't have the social context to reach out to. When you were in your second lockdown, how did you help your own mental health? Um, I mean, I think I was pretty lucky, to be honest. And one really important thing is that lockdown didn't affect everyone in the same way. Um, and some some people liked it, which no one really talks about in the media. But for some people, it removed a lot of stress from their lives, especially if they had enough money and lived in a nice home and can work from home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I feel like I really can't complain all that much. I was bored. I found it very boring and I missed people a lot. Um, just what everyone else did, just tried to stay in contact via the internet. And it's interesting what you're saying, like it just, it's not the same, but it's also better than nothing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, did a lot of socializing via Zoom, which is obviously a poor substitute, but it is, it it gives you a little it gives you enough of a kick of socializing to help um so yeah i guess i just relied on that a lot and just got into a routine of the sort of simple boring but quite low stress days you sort of get into that sort of lockdown routine and then yeah when it's all said and done and we're sort of meant to be jolted back into the new normal it's sort of like oh okay how do i i've got to adjust again all right, let's well, go. yeah, for some people coming out of it was the stressful bit. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting stuff about teenagers. Um, about a third of them said that they preferred lockdown to their life before lockdown, which is really mm. revealing in terms of, you know, understanding what was going wrong at school that meant they were happier being at home with their families. But actually for a lot of them, it was much less stress. They could just... Um, you know, figure out for them, especially like A-level, you know, um, 17, 18-year-old students, they could figure out their own work schedule. They didn't, they could sleep more. A lot of them said, you know, they didn't have to get up really early to go to school. Um, you can maintain friendships online, um, do some hobbies, spend more time with your family. So it's interesting that, you know, the teenagers who quite liked it. Um, and then actually the hard bit for them was having to go back to school. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's been a bizarre, it's weird. Sometimes it wasn't that long ago, but to look back on it and think, I can't believe we did that for so long. Yeah. Two years. 
Nuts. I know, and everyone did it. It was that's what's so weird, the universal nature of it. You know, you would have a court like we're doing now, someone on the other side of the world. And yeah, we all did it. And now we can travel again. I mean, that was yeah. uh that was something when we're actually in it, we thought we'd never be able to do. <laughs> No, and all the people who were like separated from family and stuff. Yeah. And you got to see all those videos of the reuniting of yeah. friends and family. It was a beautiful moment. But I, yeah. I felt like during that whole period, there was a lot of negative information being produced. Like you just had to turn off the TV all the time because it yeah, got yeah. so annoying. Uh, and what that does to obviously your mental health is just not a good thing. And for young people, especially, and I guess it, it led me to the question of when we are talking about the conversation about surrounding mental health, kids' mental health, for example, versus adult mental health, what do we specifically need to reshape or reframe mm. the narrative regarding kids and adult mental health? Mm. Um, so I'm particularly interested in adolescent bit so teenagers at school and at university um but, but I think this applies to everyone the the balance that we need to get right is how to um get help to the people who need it to the people who are at the more severe end of the spectrum so promote awareness of these concepts and how to get help but without accidentally sending the message to everyone else that any sign of mental distress is a problem or a sign of a disorder. And this is when things are really going wrong, especially amongst young people is that they're now, because they've, you know, it's not their fault. This is what they're being told from all these campaigns is that they're now interpreting all kinds of lower level problems as, you know, potential anxiety disorders, for example, which then actually become self-fulfilling. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's the bit that I'm worried about. Is it the same for adults or just for adolescents? Yeah, um, I mean, the attention has been much more in young people and that's kind of where I've focused and where my, yeah, my sort of theories are about that age group because so much of these awareness campaigns are targeted towards them. I think it's relevant for adults too, probably less so older adults. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Sorry, keep going. No, that's it. Yeah, I would say, yeah, what I think about this, I'm particularly thinking about um yeah, maybe people going up to their their thirties, but I don't know, this is just a hypothesis. I don't really know yet. Would you say that mental health for young people is going to continue to get worse over over the next couple of years? Or do you um, think be well, I think if it continues on the trajectory that it's already on, then yes. Um yeah, you're seeing this gradually increasing reporting of self-harm, anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms. Uh, and there's lots of reasons why, um, sort of legitimate reasons why those things might be getting worse. But I'm also interested in the possibility that the way we're talking about things is actually contributing and exacerbating the sense that things are getting worse because people now are much more willingly interpreting and reporting things as problems when they, and you know, an equivalent person wouldn't have done in the past. Right. So we need to change a narrative. Yeah. Sure. I, yeah. I just don't, yeah. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. That seems to be the big question, doesn't it? Like how do we fix a problem that we sort of 
have amplified in many ways. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I've been asked in another interview, someone said, don't you think it's too late? Like, you know, the cat's out of the bag now kind of thing. You can't rein it back in. I think that's really interesting, especially in terms of if you share awareness of things like social anxiety disorder and PTSD and people self-diagnose with those things. It's very when perhaps they are not bad enough to fully meet that criteria, but they are in distress and they need noticing and they need help. It's very difficult to Pull, pull that label away from someone because it provides meaning. It helps them understand their problem. It helps them communicate their distress. If you rip that away from someone, then you're potentially sort of, you know, in a culture where we only take distress seriously if it has a name, then you're potentially invalidating the distress of that person to tell them not to use that language. So this is the challenge about how, how do we promote the idea that all levels of distress and difficulty are real and deserve, you know, kindness and validating and support. But we shouldn't frame all of them as a psychiatric, you know, difficulty, mental disorder. When you were researching for the book, was there anything that sort of surprised you at all? Um, Some Something that's interesting is that a few of the uh, studies tracking rates of mental health problems across time show that they've increased, but not increased that much, like not increased as much as the media would have you believe. So that's interesting. Like, why are we so fixated on the idea that everything's awful and everything's unwell? Everyone's unwell. And another interesting thing is if you go back in time to see historically how often each generation believes that their generation is in a fresh crisis. You know, even from kind of the 1900s, they were worried that there was an epidemic of nervousness um, and anxiety because of, um, you know, this new fast pace of life that had been brought about because of industrialization. So that's really interesting because it tells you there's something, there's some sort of strange appeal in believing that we're a generation in crisis and that things are uniquely difficult for us now than uh, relative to anyone in the past. Uh, so I think that plays into it, this, this narrative, this sort of strangely tempting narrative that we're all unwell. But I don't think it's helpful for the individual. Mm. Seems to me like if we got rid of the media, <laughs> we'd be in a lot better, better situation. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, the trouble is that the media, in terms of reporting mental health stories, they it's in their interest for things to be a crisis because it makes a more interesting story. Yeah. So, you know, they will go with the headline that makes things sound as bad as possible or they will, you know, pluck out the statistic that makes it sound as bad as possible. Um, and this is where people get their information. So people start believing that there's a mental health crisis because the newspapers said that there were. Um, you can't get rid of it altogether. I think, yeah, maybe you just need to promote a bit of healthy scepticism around what you read and be aware that the, yeah, some newspapers, all of them, I suppose, will deliberately frame things to, to sell papers and to get clicks online. Yeah. And is there anything that we can do, like any strategies that you recommend in the book um, to guard our mental health? Or mental health in general or the media stuff? Or mental health in general. I mean, media is one thing and then we've got social media, which is another thing, but there are the 
other areas too? It's so individual. And I think a lot of it, unfortunately, is about sort of trial and error and figuring out what works for you. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of um, personally just changing how your body feels and a knock-on effect that that has. So exercise is the obvious one and uh, sleep and the food that you eat. I find it much easier to yeah do something with my body that then will have a knock-on effect on how I feel mood-wise than to sit down and try and change the way I feel, you know, the, the way I think when I feel crap. So, um, but equally, lots of people are so unwell that that doesn't help. You know, you can't recommend that everyone just exercises because some problems and disorders are just far too big for that and then they need more professional intervention. So it depends. Yeah. I mean... I struggle with my own mental health for a long period of time and exercise helps keep mm. those demons at bay uh, for the most part. But then there are other things that I do like eating proper foods and uh, having proper connections with people, trying to stay away from the media as much as I can and not mm. get sucked into that world. Uh, but yeah, I think everyone has their their low days and in those low days, it's really, really important to pick yourself up as best as you possibly can with those strategies so that mm. you don't make things worse for yourself. Mm. And, and we can be our own worst enemy, can't we, Lucy, in, in those moments? so Yes, definitely. I think, yeah, what you say about social stuff is really important. Like I think at the moment, the way we talk about mental health is often about what can we do personally within the individual to, to help in terms of exercise or um, you know, mindfulness or whatever, or let's go to a professional and what can a professional do? But we kind of forget a, a, a third option, which is about social support and what we can do for each other and how powerful that is. Um, I'm also quite, in, I mean, I always have to tell myself this because I don't, I believe in the principle, but I'm not very good at tolerating it. The idea that things just pass and get better with time and that often you just have to sit it out and you can't make it better in that moment yeah. um you know which is proven to be and it just does get better which is proven to be true so many times um in my own life but then each time something comes up i have to remind myself of it again so often yeah there is this temptation i need to do something i need to correct it i need to look after myself i need to make it go away but actually you can't eradicate all of it and often some of it is just sit, involves sitting with it and waiting and, you know, looking after yourself while you're waiting, but the, the accepting that you can't make it go away. Yeah. This too shall pass. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Is a good saying. Um, exactly. Lucy, I want to be mindful of your time. So I've got two quick final questions for you, if that's all right. People can get your yes. book wherever books are sold, which is honestly an incredible read for those people that are wanting to know more about mental health. Uh, and the science behind it too. Um, this, this is a question I'm interested in, but it's a, it's a personal question. Uh, what do you love the most about yourself and your story? Ooh. Um, I don't know if I love anything about my story. I don't, I, I don't feel like I learned anything particularly useful from the experience or that I was strengthened from it. Um, it's just something 
bad that happened that was horrible <laughs> so I don't I know there's often a lot of narrative that you know I had depression and I've you know been strengthened by it or yeah there's a lot of narrative as this sort of recovery narrative that it was a sort of in hindsight a positive thing to have gone through and I don't feel like that um I really like the work I'm doing at the moment I really like thinking about this stuff and writing about it and communicating um about it to people I really like yeah because it's sort of two separate skill sets one is to do the research and one is to be able to communicate um publicly about it you know academic writing is quite a different beast and it means a lot of thinking is sort of locked behind academic doors so I really like being able to do the research and be able to talk about it accessibly so yeah I guess I would say that we definitely need your work so please continue and I'm looking forward to the next book that's coming out um this is my favorite question I love asking all my guests at the very end it is a hypothetical one but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? (laughs) Um. Hmm. I suppose, well, two things. One, that I had interesting relationships with people. I'm very interested in, um, yeah, having having close relationships with people and how different they can be. Like, you know, you're the same person in each interaction, but that you create something um, different with each person that you get to know. I really, I, I really like having, yeah, just get, you know, people are just fascinating. I really like knowing people well and yeah everyone's interesting and all their contradictions and everything so I I I guess I would like to achieve that but also work I just I really find all this stuff fascinating I want to write more I want to have a yeah a body of work that um survives me I suppose so I hope that would give me another 66 years from now so i hope i could write a few more books in that time dr lucy fox thank you so much for your time today your wisdom your advice and your stories and for joining me today on the storybox podcast thank you for having me i really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story i just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. 
Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 